Lord, as we come before the Word, we pray that you would guide, help us to understand, to grow in our faith. We praise you for the songs of the new life that you've permitted us to sing, to sing with hope and with truth. We pray, Father, for those who know not Christ as Savior and pray that you would draw them to saving faith as we consider the text before us today. And I pray, Father, in a way I do not know, with knowledge I do not have. But I pray particularly before this text for anyone here that may be in danger of falling away from the living Christ, that may, as you know, flirt with apostasy, if not abandon the faith. Lord, it's a somber reality that we face throughout the world. And perhaps there are some here today who need this word very uniquely. And indeed, each of us does as we strive to preserve our soul for eternity and not to allow the sin of this world, the folly of our own thinking, to draw us away from the truth of Christ crucified and risen. And so we pray, Father, for what we do not know. For we do not know the heart of man, and on some level, we do not know our own hearts. And so we submit to the Word today. We submit to the Spirit of God and pray that you would bring conviction and produce endurance through our consideration of the Scriptures, we pray. In the name of our Savior, amen. Please be seated. Years ago, we ministered as a church to a group of pastors in a restricted nation. As your representative, I taught through the pastoral epistles and also provided training and sermon preparation. After the final class, two young men asked if they could take me to dinner at a Korean restaurant, which was a big thing in that part of the world. I was delighted. But as I entered that small eatery, I realized, to put it one way, that Toto and I weren't in Kansas anymore. There were two raised platforms that ran the length of this long dining room. And it was set up for the diners to sit on the platform at a low table, maybe a foot high. Well, that was weird. I was wondering how my legs were going to handle that meal. But what was even weirder, as we walked into the place, there's the cook and the server fast asleep on one of the platforms. As the first diners there for the afternoon, I've never had this experience before, we had to wake up the cook to make our meal. And it took some doing. The guy was really out. But it was the conversation with my two Asian brothers that evening that proved even more unique. Not the world that I'm in, that you're in, here in this setting. One young man, can you explain, can you believe, he explained to us that there was a church that met in his parents' home. Quite a number of people had gathered there for some years, and then without provocation, without warning, the authorities descended on their home, did some damage to the place, and confiscated property, particularly Bibles 
and hymnals. They just took them away. The other young man told me that he came to trust Christ as his, as his Savior at the age of 13. And when he put his faith in Christ at that young age, his family disowned him. Leave the house. Go away and never come back. He was now 23 years of age and he explained that for these past 10 years as he grew from a child to a man, the only family that he had known was the church that took him in. I was in a different world. And I take the time to tell this story because the original recipients of the book of Hebrews were a lot more like those two men than like us in our setting here today. They had suffered physical persecution. They had suffered social ostracism simply because they followed Jesus. But a problem had arisen Many believe this book written to a house church. We can't know that for certain, but certainly there are believers that were known to the author. And a problem had arisen that some of these same people were shrinking back from following Jesus. So they were people just like my two friends who had suffered some significant persecution. But they were beginning to slip away, to drift from Christ to reconsider what it meant to follow Jesus and the pain that was involved with that. Some were failing now even to attend the assembly. And the danger was that some would come to renounce Christ who had stood for him. Verse 25, we noted that in Hebrews chapter 10 last week. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. I'll take my two friends. They were in the habit of meeting with the body of Christ. It was very dear to them. One, uh, their church meeting in his home, and the other, his family, literally. But these people, having that same type of experience, some were neglecting the assembly. Some were it seemed, drifting away from Christ. This is a major problem. And to address this danger, the author of Hebrews warns his readers of the perils of shrinking from our confession of Christ and returning to a sinful pattern of life. He's not a little exercised about the dangers some in the church face along these lines. And he's not shy to awaken them to the grave and eternal consequences of drifting from Christ. So as I prayed this morning, I don't know who I'm speaking to. I don't know my own heart even ultimately. But we need to take this warning to heart. For as the author lays out here, those who had suffered persecution for Christ are susceptible nonetheless to drifting away from Him and suffering eternal condemnation. Light of this possibility, we encounter one of the sternest warning passages in the entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following. It begins with this warning. Judgment awaits those who persist in sin. 
This is the principle that we can draw from these first several verses, 26 to 31. Reading at verse 26, we read, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, that is, those opposed to God. Now notice carefully there in verse 26 that the sin in view is deliberate and it is persistent. They go on sinning deliberately, I think is a right translation. We're not talking then about a lapse in judgment. We're not talking about one who gets caught up in sin and struggles to break free for a season of time. Christians sin. Repentance is a way of life for every faithful believer on this side of eternity. So the author specifically addresses people not who sin, but people who persist in it deliberately. And they have, you notice here, a knowledge of the truth. He he envisions a person who understands the good news of Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. It's who he's addressing, someone who understands that, who has that knowledge, who has responded to it on some level. When such a person who has a knowledge of the gospel has been walking in some sense in the fellowship of the church, begins to deliberately and persistently choose to return to a life of sin, the author makes this terrible statement. But true, there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. How do you read that? It's not saying, he's not saying, Jesus' sacrifice for sin stops working at some point. His, his sacrifice provides forgiveness as long as we're good boys and girls, but once we cross this line, it's all over. Not at all. What he's saying is that this church member spurns the only sacrifice for sin that can cleanse us from our sins. And there is no alternative. But when we turn from Christ, we turn from the only source of salvation that is available to humanity. Let's take it to heart. Let's consider it ourselves. If you are not actively and wholly trusting Christ's death, as the complete and sufficient sacrifice for your sins, you are without hope of salvation. You're not going to get there on your own. And you're not going to find it in a religion that teaches you how to be a good person. It is only in Jesus' death in the place of sinners that we have hope for salvation in this life. The second point of application, if you are content to live in unrepentant sin if you are committed to a life of disobedience to God's will, do not imagine that a profession of faith in Christ means anything. That something that you professed in the past is going to somehow give you a step up with God. It isn't. For the person who deliberately and persistently chooses a life of rebellion against God, this is all that remains Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. The fury of fire that will consume is a reference to God's righteous, 
eternal judgment of sinners, of his adversaries. At verse 28 now, the author supports this really bold statement with a lesser to greater argument comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This we can find, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Apostasy, one who rebels against God, one who begins to worship other idols, who chooses a life of sin and rebellion against the Lord, under the Old Covenant... That's a capital offense. That's the lesser. Now the greater. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? In this high-handed, deliberate sin of apostasy under the old covenant, resulting in death of the death penalty, how much greater is judgment deserved for the one who has treated the new covenant provisions in this way? Notice what apostasy achieves, verse 29. There's three things here. It tramples underfoot Jesus' name and work. It treats him with contempt. It profanes his sacrificial death. It treats Christ's death as nothing special. It insults the Holy Spirit, treating his regenerating grace as nothing. This is pretty serious business, isn't it? The apostate faces the fury of God's judgment, the consuming fire of his holy wrath. There's nicer ways of saying this. Right? This this could be put more gently. This could be put a little more simply, a little more winsomely. And I want us to consider the fact that the author of Hebrews chooses not to talk that way. He says what is at stake is the fury of God's judgment. Burn the bridge to Jesus' saving work and you condemn your soul to hell. There is no other bridge. It was a sober warning to his readers, and it should be to us as well, to know that whatever I cling to in this life, let it be to Christ crucified and risen. To hold that confession and draw near to the Lord all my days. But there's no other bridge to salvation. And all this, of course, is in keeping with what God has said, what He's revealed about Himself in the Old Testament. Verse 30, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. He's just drawing here, and we could go into long detail of how He puts these texts together. But He's just drawing here from the Old Testament account that God is a God of judgment. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy and grace. He is also a God of judgment. And His mercy and grace make no sense if He's not a God of judgment. But He is. The Lord will judge His people. Now think of that in its context. His people is the chosen nation of Israel. Among those people are those who rebel against Him and prove to not be 
the true Israel. So he said in Old Covenant terms that he will judge his people who turn against him. We come now under New Covenant terms and how much more is it deserved, is one deserved judgment who tramples underfoot the Savior, who burns the bridge to Christ. Okay, full stop. We're going to pull off the trail and we're going to go down this road, this, this side trail for, for a few moments here. But we need to do so to come back to a matter that we considered in chapter 6. This is only faithful to what the author is saying, to connect chapter 6 with chapter 10, which is why we read that passage in Hebrews 6 earlier. Who does the author have in view here? Who is in, the, in his perception? Is he addressing truly born-again believers or people who profess to be Christians appear to be Christians, people who have walked in fellowship with the church. We notice in verse 26 they're described this way, they know the truth. In verse 29, they have profaned the blood of the covenant, notice this phrase, by which he was sanctified. By which he was sanctified. So this passage parallels the warning in chapter 6, And so our interpretation in chapter 6 and chapter 10 need to synchronize. We can't take one view of one and one of the other. They They have to relate to each other. He's saying the same thing, addressing the same kind of problem. Well, you remember as we went through chapter 6, those who were with us perhaps were dealing with apostasy. That is when a person makes a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but later abandons that profession and renounces Christ as Lord and Savior. As we discuss this from chapter 6, and so we come back to it again today, who is the person envisioned in the warning passages of Hebrews? I remind you, please be merciful to me. Every position is a minority position. So whatever we say, uh, most people will disagree with you. It's just how divisive this issue is. And so we're just doing the best. And I have to just say, here's what I understand and lay that out. I realize there's disagreement. But looking through these four views, true believers are in... uh, Here's who's in view. True believers in danger of nothing worse than losing rewards in heaven. That's all this is discussing. I've done very little to speak against that view because I just think it is so difficult to maintain. You've got to twist so many passages in Hebrews to make that work. But just look at verse 31. Does it look to you like God is removing reward from someone in heaven when it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? He speaks in verse 27 of the fury of of God's fiery judgment. That just doesn't sound like good terms of explaining how we're going to give you less reward because of your infidelity to Christ, trampling upon His name. So I've done very little to speak against that view. I don't think it's very possible to maintain. Others would say that he's talking to true believers, none of whom ever suffer the consequences of the warnings. There's two different trails to get to this conclusion. One is the hypothetical. He's saying, if it were possible for you to fall away, this is the judgment that would fall upon you. 
My struggle with that view is what's, why are we wasting our time with this? If all we're doing is talking about what would be that never will be, what is the point? Seeing that problem, the second way of dealing, of taking this view, is to say, well, let's, let's think through this. This is the way it works. It's sort of like you're driving along this really high cliff. You're on a road, there's a cliff, there's no guardrail, and the warning signs are, don't drive off the road. Don't drive off the road. Watch the road. There's a cliff here. You don't ever drive off the road. But you're thankful for the warnings. They keep you on the road. Those who would take this view, I think, is a better way, point two, number two than number one, uh, in, in this, how to speak on this point. But the problem is, is in the end, it comes back to the same place. The warnings apply to no one. They're never realized by actually anybody. It really comes into the problems of the hypothetical really become the problems of the aid to perseverance. Though I think that'd be my second choice in all of this if I wasn't heading to number four. But number three, this is addressed to true believers who lose their salvation and suffer eternal judgment. Now this interpretation is very obvious. It's a very straightforward reading of the text. It speaks of one who is sanctified, verse 29. He speaks to those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, chapter 6 and verse 4. And so we should assume that these descriptors refer to true salvation, to to true believers, unless the context indicates otherwise. But the burden of proof is with this fourth position that I would take in that these phrases look very much to describe a person who's a genuine believer. But as I argued in chapter 6, I believe there's good reason to believe the author of Hebrews uses these phrases with unique subtlety. He does not say the people in view lose their salvation. That's an inference that we supply. That's a conclusion we come to in this third position. But it's not something that the author ever says. He does not say people view their, lose their salvation. But let's take the word sanctified. We need to deal with that. Verse 29. These are individuals who, by the blood of the covenant, he was sanctified. So the Apostle Paul consistently uses this word to speak of true, regenerated believers. In Paul's writings, believers are definitively sanctified at conversion, and they are progressively sanctified until we meet Christ. This is a clear theology of the Apostle Paul. But I would ask, should we, impose Paul's use of the term upon the writer of Hebrews. The word simply means set apart. And the context of the book must determine the precise meaning of set apart. So if we impose the Apostle Paul's definition, let's take an illustration. If we oppose, I'm sorry, not uh, impose, if we impose, the Apostle Paul's definition of justification on James, 
we run into some problems. It would appear that the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul are at odds. We remember this, do we not? A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now what does that say? A person is justified by works. Quite clear what he's saying. But we know the Apostle Paul says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So James is saying God justifies those who do good works. If we just pick it out and look at it. Where Paul is saying the exact opposite. It's not works by which we're justified. Or as he says in Ephesians, it is by grace you're saved, not by works. So that no one can boast. Are they in conflict? Now what w- the Bible readers have come to the conclusion, and I think rightly so, that James and Paul are not using the word justified in exactly the same way. They have a unique twist in how they're understanding the word. They do not have a difference of opinion in theology. They do not have a difference of opinion in how we get to heaven. But just as they use the word justified, they use it a bit differently. And we need to understand that difference in order to see them to synchronize. Is that important? We would argue as a church, absolutely so. The Bible is not some different authors all saying their own thing. But rather that there is one voice behind all of Scripture. That is the voice of the Holy Spirit. All of the Scriptures unite together. And so if we see a conflict, it's just because we see a conflict. We don't understand yet well enough how to synchronize the ideas. But here's how we synchronize it. James and Paul use the word justify in somewhat distinct ways as they say the same thing. Where am I going? Back here to number four. I would suggest that the same is going on with the use of the word sanctified in Hebrews compared to how the Apostle Paul uses the term. Now, if you believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, this destroys everything that I'm saying here, of course, but I would just say to you, read it in the Greek. In the Greek text, it becomes really pretty clear that this is not Paul's writing. It, the writing is so distinct, so different. The what, the, just the way they, they describe themselves or, or uh, express themselves is so different. But even still... If it was the Apostle Paul, it's possible to use a word with distinct meaning as well. So, all that aside, I would argue that what is in view here is the fourth position on the screen here, that professing believers, this is professing believers who prove by their failure to persevere in the faith that they are lost and will suffer eternal judgment. Why is it that we press this point? If you look at these three views, 
two of these views, three of these views indeed. Number one, number two, and number four all take the position that they do because of the whole Bible. Now, the third position is really the easiest to maintain here, that these are true believers who lose their salvation if we just look at the book of Hebrews. But these other three positions are all reflecting the fact that as we get outside of the book of Hebrews, this idea becomes very problematic. Let's consider, for instance, the theology of the Apostle Paul. I'm messed up here, but I'm getting there. Here we go. If we take, and we could put verse after verse with each of these lines, but are we to maintain that these are true believers who lose their salvation? It's very difficult to assert from the Apostle Paul that the Father who gave us the gift of eternal life apart from human merit in accordance with His predetermined will, by uniting us with the person of His Son, there is the union with Christ, and sealing us with the Holy Spirit, would then break the seal of the Spirit, disunite us from union with Christ, nullify His predetermined will, and passively defer to us as we renounce His gift of eternal life by human demerit. It becomes very difficult to take the book of Hebrews and to push it against the theology of the Apostle Paul in this way. Or we might go to the teachings of Jesus. All the Father gives me will come to me. The initiative here is not on the part of the individual, The initiative is on the part of the Father. The Father giving to the Son individuals who come to Him, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. What is it? That I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I give these just two brief examples, but we could go to many others, many other places, and as we make the whole, seek to to bring the whole Bible to be integrated in its understanding, it leads us to see the subtleties in the book of Hebrews. And I would maintain that what the author is looking at is is talking to everyone as if we are still in question. Now we can know that we have eternal life. We can have absolute assurance of that in this life. But as we've said often, the true believer doesn't have a glowing nose. We don't know who might fall into apostasy. We don't know who may prove to not be genuine in their faith. And so the author just speaks to all of us. In fact, he includes himself, doesn't he? Verse 26, if we go on sinning. Now he's genuinely a believer. In fact, these he will maintain are believers. But we don't know what the future will hold and where we will go. After tasting, so here, who's in view here then? 
This is my opinion, my belief in the study that I've done. It may not be yours, and I respect that, and we need to work through the text. But I would say that he is addressing people who have, one, they've understood the gospel. Two, they've professed faith in it. Third, they've separated themselves from the world. They've been sanctified in this sense, in identifying with the body of believers under their persecution. They have been sanctified in that sense, set apart in that sense, identified with the body. But after tasting the life of the believing community, they come to a place of deliberately and persistently rejecting Christ. They abandon the only hope of salvation there is and thus will be eternally lost. And according to verse 31, dread fear awaits such an apostate. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Deep breath. he, He puts the period there and that's pretty much it. That is a very stern warning. It does not give us confidence in self. It forces us to ask some hard questions about am I drawing near? Am I persisting in my confession? Am I rooting out sin? Am I fighting to preserve my soul by fidelity to Christ? But the period ends here. He's going to move now to words of encouragement, words we need to hear. Before we move to that second main point, though, let me just say this. Several years ago, this is from the uh, book by Al Mohler, Words from the Fire, he reports that several years ago, British researchers conducted a door-to-door survey on religious belief, and they asked this question, among others, Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles? One man responded to that and said, no, I don't believe in that God, I just believe in the ordinary God. There is only one God, and he is not ordinary. He rules from heaven's throne. There is no higher throne. There is no other throne. God reigns as the all-powerful judge of the living and the dead, and it is a fearful thing to enter his presence having rejected his son's sacrificial atonement for sin. And I labor here in great hope that there's no one sitting here who's going to have that experience that you stand before the Christ that you rejected. It is a fearful thing to enter His presence having rejected the Son, but, it also, but He also intervenes in human history by holding out His hands in saving grace. It's fearful to fall into His hands of judgment, but it is mercy to fall into His hands of hope and kindness. It will be gloriously wonderful to embrace our Savior. 
And this is indeed what the author actually anticipates for his readers. Having issued this severe warning that would incite them to test whether or not they are in the faith, the author now offers warm encouragement. Now, let's imagine my friends, my Asian friends I spoke of. What if I went back some years later and met with these two young men and found that sadly they were no longer attending church? They had grown cold and indifferent to Christ. It seemed to many around, and that some talked to me and said, listen, it seems that these men are going to abandon Christ, that they're going to walk away from Him. Perhaps they were not genuine believers, or others might think they've lost their salvation, but whatever the case, talk to them. What would be my counsel? What would be your counsel? What would be right for us as a church to say to these young men, hey, you guys have suffered a lot for Jesus. I get it. I understand. It's a hard road. The Oster- I mean, get, go back to your family. They'll receive you back. I, I understand. God will understand. It'll all be okay. Would that be faithful? It'd be horrible counsel, wouldn't it? In, in agreement with the author of Hebrews, we'd say it'd be horrible counsel. No, we would plead with them to turn back to Christ, to not abandon the faith. I don't know if it's genuine or not. That's not my role. But what I would say is come back to Jesus. The Jesus. And then I think it'd be right for us to say, go back to the days you told me about. Remember when you rejoiced? It was serious joy. But when you rejoiced that those people came into your home and stole things and broke things up because you were a Christian? Do you remember when your parents kicked you out of the home at age 13? And you spoke to me of those days of suffering with joy in your heart that you were a follower of Christ. That's exactly what the author's doing here. Notice where he goes now. He says, look back. Look back. Remember the joy of fervent zeal for God that you once had. Now again, he's he's, he's talking to all the church on some level, but certainly to those who are struggling and drifting. He says, verse 32, recall The former days, when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. The former days of enlightenment, that is referring to when they heard the gospel and responded. Should they turn away from Christ, it may be revealed that their faith was false, but he's convinced that they truly trusted Christ as Savior, and he reminds them of the price they paid for that decision. They suffered rebuke. They suffered ridicule from their community. And like Jesus, they were despised and rejected. Perhaps some were even disowned by their families. Covered under those words in 32 and 33. Verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison. This refers to Christians in prison for the faith, undoubtedly. We read this, don't read this from our context. You've got to read this from their context. So what? You went to see somebody in prison. It takes a little time. It's, you know, time waste and difficult to get in and that kind of thing for us. That's it. Not for them. But there was a young man that lived in the neighborhood where Beth and I first lived and he decided life was just too hard. He just couldn't make it. So he picked out an old person and killed the person. Why? Because he can go to prison 
have somebody provide his food, his shelter, his clothing, and give him job training and care for him, insurance. It was easier. I mean, the man was clearly in bad, bad shape. But I, that's our context. And I would argue that we should treat prisoners as made in the image of God. And there is appropriate care that should be there. I'm not making some argument otherwise, but I'm saying that's our context, that's not their context. You want to eat? Find a friend to bring you some food. You want to be warm at night? You certainly have family. They can bring you a blanket. And what else did it do? Not only did this relieve the Roman Empire from having to spend massive amounts of money for those incarcerated, what else did it do? All the associates of that person came to the jail. And they got to write down their names and figure out who they were, who was in... So when you went to minister to someone in prison in that day, you were taking quite the risk. You were identifying with this person who was in prison, letting everyone know that you were a friend. You guys did that with joy, he says. Remember those days? Some of your people, some of the church were put in prison and you went right to the prison and provided for them. Verse 34, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That was faith. That was confidence in Christ. To say, because I followed Jesus, someone breaks down the door of my home, takes things out of it, plunders my possessions, and I rejoice because I have a greater reward in heaven. It's deep faith. There's great maturity that's evidenced there. They believe the words of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is just a quick sideline, just to chew on yourself, but we better get ready for this, Christian. We are so oriented to our rights to not being misused. We understand the ridicule that we suffer all the time in the media, but there is no doubt that we are coming to days when we're going to have to stand and suffer for our stand. Our brothers and sisters in Canada are facing this in unusual ways, as are those in Australia. It's coming to our shores. You take my stuff, they're not in a fetal ball crying. They're not standing up and saying, I've been misused. They're rejoicing, great is your reward in heaven. He points them back to those days. May God enable us to say then also at the end of 2022 that our love for Christ is never, was never deeper than it is now. There's some of that going on here. He's saying, look back to where you stood. Look back to where you were and ask yourself the question, have I left my first love? Was there a time when I was warmer? More on that in a moment. But thirdly, he says, look forward. Persevere in faith to the glorious end. Verse 35. Therefore, and I think it'd be good to, to create a paragraph here, but therefore... Do not throw away your confidence. 
What's the therefore? First of all, be warned. Rejecting Christ leads to damnation. Secondly, remember the days when you joyfully suffered for Christ. Remember who you are. Thirdly, then, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Your confidence, their trust in God, their confidence in the power of the gospel to save, the great reward, the imperishable inheritance of the redeemed, eternity as a citizen of God's glorious kingdom. This is what's at stake. Don't throw that away. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have this background, you have this experience, but now endure. Continue to trust in Christ until you've received what He has promised. Again, He draws from the Old Testament context for support for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. A messianic reference from the book of Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There it is again, the necessity to endure, the necessity to persevere until we meet Christ. Now, what does he think of them? He's been really firm in his warnings. But he says, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. There's the confidence. This is not who we are. We're not apostate. We're not those who are drifting and falling away. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And without faith, you will not preserve your soul. Without continuing trust in God's word and walking in obedience with him, you will drift away. The way forward, the path of perseverance, is a path of faith. And there is laid out here for us then in this very stern warning, which is somewhat unusual uh, to, in the Scriptures. We don't find many of these, but we find this very, very stern warning, and many others as well. But as we see it, we recognize, as William Lane reminds us in his commentary on Hebrews that the alternative to worship is apostasy. The alternative to worship is apostasy. There are two destinies. The path to God is the path of enduring, persevering, obedient fidelity to Him in a life of worship that expresses itself in fellowship with a faithful assembly of believers. Looking at verse 25 again, 24 and 25. That's the idea. The other path is a path to hell and one of disobedience and self-worship and fellowship with the world. Those are the two paths. There are no others. So when a professing believer begins to drift away, to shrink back, the danger is that they will ultimately renounce Christ, falling into a pattern of deliberate, persistent sin. We must fear that outcome and avoid it. Now when someone does that, can there be a return? I just say, we're not God. And I say, wherever there's repentance, it's repentance. Run with it. But the warning is quite clear. 
We should fear this outcome, but not in a debilitating way. We should fear it like we maintain a healthy distance when peering over a cliff. We see it's there, we appreciate the danger, and the fear of it holds us away. So we need to determine as we respond to this text, believer in Christ, don't go there. Don't go over the cliff. Don't drift away. Don't shrink back. But continue to preserve your soul by persevering in the faith. This is the call to us. And this is our life together as the church of Jesus Christ. To help each other do that. To encourage each other down those lines. Determine, church member, then to be a source of aid to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. To say, I want my life to shine the light and truth of Christ such that it encourages one another to carry on, to be faithful to the end. For those that know not Christ as Savior, I point you back again to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but there is no need for you to do so. We don't know all of God's will and plan We don't know the mysteries of how the Spirit of God works. We can say there's no need. For there is a Christ who holds open arms and invites sinners to come and to lay down their sin, to trust that He has paid the penalty of that sin and to draw near to God. Preserve your soul, believer. And if you've not come to that belief, then know God is a God of judgment, but He is also a God of love who has provided forgiveness of sin. May we embrace it in faith. We praise You, Father, for this time in Your Word, for the reminder of its intricacies. We recognize that we do not know all, and the text is always above our head. And yet we thank You for what You've revealed to us and the warning that is part of helping us to persevere in the faith. The warning against apostasy. May we never go there. May we never fail you. But Lord, we know we will in our sin. And thank you for the forgiveness that comes through confession. But we pause here to thank you that you will never fail us. If you have put us into the hand of the Son, we are doubly secure there and indwelt by the Spirit with hearts filled with joy and thanksgiving, we endure to the end. May there be no one in this room who does not. I pray that we would cling to Christ and though we acknowledge confusion in understanding all that your word teaches, we know this with absolute assurance that you will hold us fast, that you will never fail us or forsake us, that you will preserve your people. And I pray that that preservation would be evident in this assembly, day in and day out, as we encourage one another, as we see the day of your return approaching. Through Jesus we pray.